there is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. It is a tremendous privilege and a pleasure once again to speak of the faithfulness of God. There's not any point in telling one's own story unless it's connected to the faithfulness of God. Obviously, your experience is not my experience, nor is mine yours, but it's the same Lord who calls each of us to himself and wants to reveal himself to us day by day and moment by moment if we're willing to walk with him, live with him, and act in cooperation with him. And that certainly is my desire. Our soloist tonight had no idea that he was singing two of my favorite hymns, one old one and one new one. Savior, like a shepherd, lead us. Much we need thy tender care. In thy pleasant pastures, feed us for our use. Thy folds prepare. I testify tonight to the faithfulness of that shepherd who has led me step by step in utter faithfulness. I, his sheep, have been very foolish and very wayward and very stubborn and very ignorant, and not by any means always obedient or always even ready to follow the shepherd. But the shepherd in his mercy is much more interested in getting the sheep where the sheep ought to be than the sheep are in getting there. And so I'm very grateful for the opportunity and the privilege of telling you a little bit of my own story. And I'm going to begin in a little thatched roof, split palm house in the eastern jungle of Ecuador in 19... 58, 59, I guess it was. By that time, I had acquired a house with walls. I was telling the fifth grade students this morning uh, that I lived in a house with no walls and no floors and no furniture for quite a while, a whole year, which seems quite a while when you don't have any of the normal amenities that you're used to having. And I happen to be a person who loves privacy and solitude, and there was none of either when I lived in that house with no walls. But the following year, some Quechua Indians who were used to living in houses with walls came in to our clearing in the jungle and built me a house with walls. Now, it was a very simple little house, a little bit like a birdcage made out of bamboo. It had wobbly floors. If you walked across the floor too heavily, the furniture would wobble, and if there was a glass of water on the table, it would be very likely to spill. But there was a thatched roof, and there were walls, and there were floors of a sort. And I was living in that house, and one afternoon, a man named Gikita came and sat on the floor next to my hammock and took the little plastic microphone of a very primitive tape recorder. This was back in the days before you could get anything like the high-fidelity tape recorders that you can get today. This was a German machine, just about that big, run on four flashlight batteries. And Gikita was the oldest man in the Alka tribe. 
at least the oldest man in the group of which we had made uh, with which we had made contact and he was indeed the first man who decided finally that it was time to kill the foreigners and so i'd asked ikita if he would come and tell me this story that i had been very very eager to learn ever since 1956 and so he took the microphone and he began to tell his story with great enthusiasm and gestures and lots of onomatopoetic words words that are derived from the sounds which they describe and he told how one day several years before the little yellow plane which they had seen go over very high over their area began to come down lower they called it the ibu and ibu was a word for a would be that made a noise that sounded exactly like the little yellow plane sounded at a distance after i learned this word and found out that it actually meant would be then i realized that there had been times when i had also confused the sound of the airplane with the sound of this would be and so he was telling me about how ibu and then he talked about how the the little yellow plane began to drop things to him and his friends and that was very exciting and week after week the plane would come over and week after week they would drop gifts to these people things like aluminum pots and mirrors and beads and spoons and knives and axe handles axe heads and machetes and whatever the foreigners thought the alkas might appreciate they dropped sometimes with parachutes sometimes free fall with long streamers so that the indians would be able to find them in the jungle and then gikita told about the time when they saw a bucket coming out of the airplane and slowly uh, going around in a circle as the plane made a low a slow circle and this bucket was attached to a rope which spiraled down to the vortex of a cone and the bucket actually came to the rest on the ground and gikita and his friends were smart enough to grab the bucket look inside take out the gifts that were inside and the following week they were actually prepared with a return gift to give to these strange white men who did such strange things but gikita told me that day after day he and his other alka men would talk about why these white people were doing these strange things were they trustworthy were they trying to take the indians off guard in order to be treacherous as all other white men that they had ever had any contact with had been and history indicates that many atrocities had been committed against these indians by white people ecuadorian soldiers are said to have used them for target practice from their airplanes at times so at any rate they had no reason to trust white people but these white men seemed to be good because they were giving them good things and they were flying low enough so that they could actually see their faces and their faces were obviously friendly and they were making gestures to them to try to indicate that they were friendly and so the alcas began to make gestures about coming down come down and see us and they actually built a platform about 12 feet square and about 10 feet off the ground for the plane to land on they thought surely this yellow bird would sit down if they made a 
a platform for it. And they were very disappointed that it didn't do that. But anyway, he told me about the day when we realized, he said, that the white men had come into our territory and had made a camp on the Kurorai River. And then we really began to worry and we really had some arguments. What shall we do? What are they coming here on our territory for? And there were those who said, let's go and be friendly to them. Let's find out what they want. Others that said, we can't be friendly. They're coming to eat us. And so the argument went back and forth. And finally, three Aukas, two women and one man, ventured out to the beach where the five white men had built their camp and returned quite safely without anything bad having happened to them. But he said, we still were not sure, and we still argued. And two days later, six of us men took four women, and we made our way to the camp. Well, he said, we six men hid back in the jungle, and we watched what the white men would do to the four women. We thought we knew what they would do, but they only laughed and talked a language we couldn't understand, and they ate, and they gave the women something to eat, and they gave them beads and ribbons and pots and spoons, But he said, I sat there on the other side of the river with my spears in my hand, and finally I turned to my buddies and I said, I brought my spear, I'm going to use it. And so he said, I rushed out from our hiding place in the jungle and threw my spear and sank it into the back of one of those white men. Whereupon another white man came rushing over and tackled me, grabbed me, and threw me to the ground. Well, I've always been pretty suspicious that the white man who did the tackling was probably my husband, Jim Elliott, because he was a conscientious objector and would never bear arms. There were three of the five men who did bear arms. They had guns. And Jim was also a champion wrestler. So I thought, well, he's probably the one that did the tackling. But at any rate, Gikita's story ends with a very long, very detailed, and very sordid account of the death of all of the five men that they had speared. He said, when I threw my spear and somebody tackled me, then another one of my friends threw a spear into the man that did the tackling, and pretty soon there was a big fight going on. But he said, we couldn't get them dead. It took a long time, and finally we threw them all into the river. You can imagine the effect that all of these details had upon me because this was the story of the death of my husband and the other four men. And I had been wondering for about three years, what could possibly have happened? How did they do it? Just Indians with wooden spears fighting against five big, strong American men, quite a bit bigger than the Indians, three of whom had guns. And why did they do it? That was my great question. And Geeky to answer that very simply, he said, we thought they were cannibals. We thought they were coming to eat us. Well, the question of what I was doing there goes back many years before that. And so I will go back to my beginnings. I was grow- I was born in a missionary family. My parents were living in Belgium at the time of my birth. And I grew up in a missionary family with many missionary guests. My mother had a guest book with 42 countries and 27 nationalities represented. We spent our childhood listening to wonderful and exciting missionary stories at the dinner table. 
We went to missionary meetings, we read missionary books, we looked at missionary slides, and so it was not surprising that five of the six of us children became missionaries. And the sixth is still teaching in a Christian college in Boston. It was when I was about four years old that a missionary visited our home, a missionary named Betty Scott, who was on her way to China to marry her fiancé named John Stamm. I vaguely remember her visit. I very vividly remember that four years later, after she had gone to China and married her fiancé, my father came home with a newspaper telling the story of how John and Betty Stamm had been captured by Chinese communists and beheaded. That made a very deep impression on an eight-year-old child. Why did they get their heads chopped off? Well, simply because they were Christians. To be a Christian is likely to cost you something. It might even cost everything. And at the age of 12, I came across a prayer that Betty Scott Stamm had prayed, and it said just what I wanted to say to God. Lord, I give up all my own plans and purposes, all my own desires and hopes, and accept thy will for my life. I give myself, my life, my all, utterly to thee, to be thine forever. Fill me with thy Holy Spirit. Use me as thou wilt. Send me where thou wilt. Work out thy whole will in my life at any cost, now and forever. And I copied that prayer into my Bible. Now, what does a 12-year-old child know about the cost of the will of God? Well, I've told you one strong reason why I had a fairly clear idea that it would cost quite a bit. But none of us really knows what discipleship is going to entail. It's not our business to know. It is our business to trust God. And sometimes, as a young person, I'm sure I thought, well, how can I trust God if I don't know what his will for me is going to be? But that's exactly where trust comes in. Trust would not be necessary if we knew all the answers. We don't need to trust somebody who is giving us all the answers. But if we stop on the street corner in Gainesville and ask for directions for this church, and the person says, follow me, I'll take you there, we have to trust them. They're not giving us directions. We have no reason particularly to believe that they're telling us the truth. We simply trust them. Well, it's a whole lot safer to trust God, the shepherd who loves the sheep. And so I made the commitment. I copied it into the back of my Bible. And I do believe that God actually began to answer that prayer. And I would say to you parents, never underestimate the spiritual discernment of your children. I very clearly remember at the age of 10 thinking to myself, these grown-ups don't know what is going on in my head. They don't know that I know that God is speaking to me and that I am having to get serious about making up my mind to follow him. And when I was 12, I went to a missionary conference at which I heard a great missionary from Africa, a woman named Dr. Virginia Blakesley, speak. 
and the impression that she made on me was indelible. She spoke on Isaiah 50, verse 7, The Lord God will help me. Therefore shall I not be confounded. Therefore have I set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. And I remember the stories that she told, and I remember the intensity with which she repeated that verse in Isaiah 50, verse 7. And when I look over a group like this, I have absolutely no idea who is listening. I have no idea who has ears to really hear what God might be saying. And I certainly have no idea who might be going to do something about it. It's all very well to go and hear somebody speak and say, well, that was a great talk or that was a wonderful talk or that was a nice speech you made. It's a very different thing to do something about it. And I've often thought how when that Dr. Blakesley looked over that very crowded auditorium, I doubt that she would have singled out the skinny 12-year-old on the front row as being a very likely prospect of someone who was really listening and would never forget what she said. But I was that girl, of course, and I was listening. And so I really do believe that God began to to lead me like a shepherd and to answer my prayer. And I remember at the age of 14 being suddenly aware of the fact that I was lying behind the hymn book, lying, telling lies, because I was singing things which I could not in all honesty say. For example, in that beautiful hymn, Beneath the Cross of Jesus, which is one of my favorite hymns to this day, it says in the second verse, I take, O cross, thy shadow for my abiding place. I ask no other sunshine than the sunshine of his face. And I thought to myself, that's a lie. I'm asking all kinds of sunshine besides the sunshine of his face. Well, what can we do in a case like that? If you really stop and think about the words of most of the hymns that we sing, they're full of prayers and full of rather breathtaking commitment statements. What can we do when we suddenly look at those words soberly and realize that they're not thoroughly true, that we're not wholeheartedly able to say them? I think the only thing we can do is to say, Lord, help me to pray this prayer in honesty. Help me to pray truthfully. And I began to do that, praying that the Lord would enable me to take the shadow of his cross as my abiding place. In other words, that I was going to remain with him and do what he wanted me to do. And when I went to college, I learned a hymn Along the same lines, oh, teach me what it meaneth, that cross uplifted high. With one, the man of sorrows condemned to bleed and die. Oh, teach me what it cost thee to make a sinner whole. And teach me, Savior, teach me the value of a soul. If you pray that God will teach you what the cross means, I believe that God will do just that. 
And someone asked this morning in the question and answer period, what does the cross mean? And my answer was something like this. I think the cross is wherever my human desires and my human nature balk or where the will of God cuts across my human desires and my human nature. Anything at all that is not according to my tastes and conveniences and comforts, which God may be asking me to accept, is the cross. It is at that point that God gives me the opportunity to say, yes, Lord. And my whole life, I want to be a yes, Lord. Here I am. Do anything you want with me, Lord. And that was, of course, the substance of that prayer. I give up all my own plans and purposes, all my own desires and hopes, and accept thy will for my life. How many of you, and I'm not asking for a show of hands, but how many of you have ever prayed the Lord's Prayer? We rattle it off. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And never stop to think if that if we really want God's will to be done and his kingdom to come, the chances are pretty good that my will is going to have to be undone every once in a while. I am declaring to God that I will do what he wants, not what I want. And so very slowly and gradually and with many starts and stops over the years, I began to learn that. And I see some young people here who might have read a book of mine called Passion and Purity. Anybody here who's ever heard of that book? Two or three people. Well, in that story, I tell how God really began the most severe lesson in answer to the prayer, Oh, teach me what it meaneth that cross uplifted high. Because when I was a senior in high school, in college, I entered into the stage that we used to call senior panic, when all of a sudden you realize that you're almost going to graduate, and if you've been for four years on a Christian college campus, and in those four years you've never found a husband, then the chances are going to be extremely reduced after you graduate. And if your chances were fairly good here and you didn't find one, where would you ever find one? And I had already believed that God was calling me to be a missionary, and I was thrilled at the prospect of being a missionary. That was not a struggle at all. I was hoping that God would call me to be a foreign missionary. But the idea of being a foreign old maid missionary did not appeal to me. I knew some wonderful old maid missionaries, but I didn't really want to be like them in being an old maid. And then began that most serious beginnings of prayer, really wrestling with God over an issue where my human flesh, my human desires was struggling against what looked like the possibility of God's will being a single life. And it was during my senior year in my tiny little room in a college dormitory that I came to the place where I said, Yes, Lord. And I want you to be understand very clearly that there's a big difference between wanting and willing. A very simple illustration, I think, will show what I mean. I don't suppose that very many of us 
leap out of bed with great gusto and joy first thing in the morning when the alarm clock goes off. No matter what time the alarm clock goes off, most of us would like to have a little bit more sleep. We want more sleep. But most of us, most of the time, get out of bed, put our feet on the floor. That's willing. You want to stay in bed, you will to get up, because you need to get up, you have to get up. There are many things to do. People ask me, do you write books when you feel inspired? When you want, when you feel like writing books? My answer is, if I wrote books when I feel inspired, I don't think I would have written the first book. Because as far as I know, I've ever, never experienced even five minutes of inspiration. I hope that if it ever happens, I will be sitting at my desk in front of my computer. But so far, I don't know that it has ever happened. I write because I think it's one of the things that God has asked me to do. And for the same reason, basically, that I clean the bathroom. I clean the bathroom because it needs to be cleaned. I write the book because it needs to be written. I write the letters because people expect me to answer their letters. Wanting is one thing. Willing is something else. And so I was saying to the Lord, you know that I can never honestly say to you, and he knows the secret desires of our hearts, doesn't he, before we mention them to him. I could never honestly say to you, Lord, I really want to be single. But I can honestly say, I am willing, Lord, for whatever you want to give me. If marriage is the gift that you want me to have, I'll take it with gladness. If singleness is the gift that you want me to have, even if it's for the rest of my life, I'll take it, Lord, and by your grace, I believe that maybe you will enable me to be thankful, even for that. Well, once I had settled that matter, guess what? I found myself falling in love. Very stupidly, with absolutely no reason whatsoever to think that this man that I was falling in love with had any interest whatsoever in me. I didn't think he had ever looked at me twice, really. But he was a friend of my brother Dave's, and his name was Jim Elliott, and Dave was always saying to me, you've got to meet this guy Elliott. Well, I wasn't very excited about this guy Elliott because he was one of my little brother's friends, and I wasn't very excited about meeting my little brother's friends. They were just a, a year behind me, juniors when I was a senior. But I went to a wrestling mat, wrestling meet one night just ostensibly to watch my brother who was on the wrestling team but there was also this man that they called the India Rubber Man on the mat and his name was Jim Elliott and they called him that because he could be tied into the most unimaginable and agonizing knots by his opponents but never once was pinned and he ended up winning the championship of four states in his wrestling class he was a very interesting guy I liked his build, I liked the way he wrestled, I liked the way he threw everything he had into it. I liked his sense of humor, I watched him in class, I liked the way he was diligent in his studies. He was the president of the Foreign Missions Fellowship and so he had a reputation of being spiritual. I knew he was committed to the foreign mission field. I liked the fact that I watched him in dining hall lines which could take as much as a half an hour. He would be standing there with little white cards in his hands, either Greek verbs or scripture memory cards that he was learning, and I thought, there's a man who takes time seriously and doesn't waste it. And I just began ticking these things off in my mind, and all of a sudden I thought to myself, 
I could very easily fall in love with a man like that. In fact, this is the kind of a man I've been looking for that God might someday give me as a husband. And I think I had written down about 16 qualifications in the back of my diary when I was about 15 or 16 years old, you know, the minimum list that I would require in a husband. Well, Jim Elliott was not six feet four, which I thought would be very nice. My father was six feet four, and since I'm five feet nine, I thought it'd be nice to have a man at least that much taller than I. And he did not have an operatic baritone voice, but he had a lot of other things that I hadn't even thought about, and he had a whole lot of other things that I had thought about that were on the list. Anyway, here comes the test, and here comes what I believe is the most crucial test in the life of any young man or woman, and it is the test of the validity of your spiritual commitment this matter of the love life, whether you have one or whether you don't have one. And of course, I didn't have one as far as any reciprocation was concerned. So I began to spread out my longings to God and ask him to do with them whatever he wanted. Well, it so happened that when the yearbooks came out, we used to rush around and get autographs of our friends, and I wanted to get Jim Elliott's autograph, and I hoped that he might put some little, uh, perhaps some cryptic message in there besides just his signature, and I was thrilled to death when I saw that he wrote not just his signature, which was a very flourishing, uh, beautiful handwriting, but he also put something underneath, which I couldn't read until he handed the book back to me. He had shut the book, he handed it back, I had to find the place quickly, and I found that he had written his name and a scripture reference. Well, I didn't know it by heart, so you can imagine how long it took me to race to the dormitory, grab my Bible, thumb through it, and find 2 Timothy 2.4. And these were the words that I found. A soldier on active service will not become entangled in civilian affairs. <laughs> he must be wholly at his commanding officer's disposal. Now, I saw in those words, in that choice of a verse, that here was a man who had made one final and irrevocable lifetime choice, that he would be under orders, that he was disposable for God, and that nothing and no one, and certainly not I, was going to deflect him from moving down the course of the will of God like a thunderbolt. A soldier on active service will not become entangled in civilian affairs. He must be wholly at his commanding officer's disposal. And I liked that. I thought, that is the man for me. That is the kind of man that I've prayed for all my life. Well, just a few weeks before I graduated, the Foreign Missions Fellowship had a breakfast at a park. Jim, being the president, was there, of course, and I was also one of the officers, and so we were among the last few cleaning up the mess after everybody else had left. And Jim came over and said, Can I walk you back to the dormitory? And I thought I would die. And, of course, I said yes. 
And so we started to walk back toward the dormitory, and within the first couple of minutes, he turned to me and he said, I think we need to get squared away how we feel about each other. And at that point, I did die. I mean, I just <laughs> gasped, I'm sure. And I, But at the same time, of course, I was thrilled to death, but at the same time, I thought, well, of all the cheek, of all the brass, of all the chutzpah, that this guy actually thinks that I have some feelings for him. Where did he get that idea? Because I thought I had done a very good job of keeping my feelings entirely to myself. I hadn't talked to people about it. Not by so much as the flicker of an eyelash had I ever let Jim know that I was interested in him. Although I had noticed that there were a few times when it looked to me as though he was sort of climbing over other people in Greek class in order to get the chair next to mine. But I thought to myself, don't be a fool. Don't read anything into this. But... I was thrilled that he had, obviously, some feelings for me who wouldn't have said this. So I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, what do you mean? What do I mean? You know what I mean. I've been in love with you for months. Well, I said, I didn't know that. And he said, well, you must be deaf, dumb, and blind. He said, I've been trying to show you in every way except verbal, but now I'm telling you. I'm in love with you, and I've been in love with you for months. Well, that was a stunning piece of news. But he followed that with an even more stunning piece of news, which was that as far as he knew, God was asking him to remain single, perhaps for the rest of his life. And so he said, well, let's not go back to the dorm. Let's go back out to the park and let's sit down and let's talk about this thing. And so we went back out and we sat on the grass and we talked for seven hours. And we discovered that each of us had gone through the same course of discipline with God, where God was saying, will you remain single if that's what I want? And of course, I was arguing with God and saying, well, Lord, couldn't you just give me a little hint? I mean, Five years, ten years, but maybe someday would you have a husband for me? And the Lord was saying, will you do what I want you to do, regardless of what it is? Will you trust me? Jim had been going through exactly the same kind of a thing. We had learned the same scripture verses. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly, Psalm 8411. We had learned the same Amy Carmichael poem, Lord crucified, O mark thy holy cross, on motive, preference, all fond desires, on that which self in any form inspires. Set thou that sign of loss. And when the touch of death is here and there laid on a thing most precious in our eyes, let us not wonder let us recognize the answer to this prayer. We had been praying the same kind of prayers. It was just incredible the ways in which God had led us along a very similar pathway, parallel, neither one aware that the other one was going through the same kind of thing. And Jim made very clear to me, he said, I'm not asking you to marry me. I'm not even asking you to wait for me. He said, you go ahead and go to Africa, which is where I thought I was to go. And he said, I'm going to South America. God knows how to bring us together if he wants to. But we're going to turn the whole thing back over to him. A few nights later, we went for a walk again. Once again, to just sort of sort out what God might be trying to say to us here.
And we wandered without even thinking into a cemetery where we found a convenient slab to sit on. And we sat down and I broached the subject that I had been thinking and praying about for a couple of days, which was that Jim had planned that we should correspond. And I thought, is that a commitment to God or is that a commitment or is that a way of sort of keeping a few strings on each other? If we're really serious about leaving this whole thing in God's hands, maybe it doesn't make sense to correspond. Maybe we really ought to just cut the whole thing off. And so I mentioned this to Jim, and there was a long silence. He didn't jump at the suggestion. Finally, he said, I think you're right. I'm pretty sure you're right, because this morning in my Bible reading, the story was Abraham being asked, to offer on the altar the most precious thing in his life, which was his son Isaac. And he said, since you are the most precious thing in my life, he said, that's where I put you, right square on the altar. And I told the Lord that that is where you were going to stay until and unless God provided himself a ram, a substitute. Well, we sat in silence after that for a few more minutes and suddenly realized that the moon had risen behind us and was casting the shadow of a stone cross on that stone slab between us. So now, ladies and gentlemen, you know how far apart we were sitting, probably at least this far apart. I was keeping my mother's rule, keep them at arm's length. But what a symbol, what a message from God, what a confirmation. The cross must be between us. And only God could bring us together at the foot of that cross. Why do I go into such a long detail about this? Because I really believe it was the most important and painful and revealing test of the validity of my commitment to Christ. And as I talk to young people today, I really do believe that there will never be a more severe test. Will you remain sexually pure? Will you keep your virginity until the wedding night? Are you going to give it to the wrong person or the right person? And nobody loses their virginity. We give it away. To whom do you want to give it? And, of course, I get lots and lots of flack about that. In this day and age, that kind of a message, well, it's not Elizabeth Elliot talking. The Bible says, shun fornication. You are not your own. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, glorify God in your body. And the world tells us we are our own, and we have a right to do with our own bodies anything we want to do. That's a lie. So anyway, I'm not going to go through the rest of the whole story of of my life. But Jim was not graduating. I was. I lived in New Jersey. He lived in Portland, Oregon. I was going to Africa. He was going to South America. The chances of our seeing each other again seemed to be virtually nil. But in the providence of God, after five and a half years, he did bring us together. Gave Jim a green light to propose to me, and we were married in Quito, Ecuador. And 27 months later, when the opportunity came for him to participate with something called Operation Alka, 
with four other missionaries. He jumped at the chance, and it was in January of 1956, after all those weeks of dropping gifts from the little ibu that Gikita had described to me, that they felt it was time to go into Alka territory and set up a camp. And so they went in, and they had what appeared to be a very friendly contact on the Friday following the Monday when they set up, set up their camp. Well, I knew the two women who had been on the beach that afternoon with those five men, and I asked them the questions that were burning in my mind. What did the five men do when you came out? And they said they laughed and they talked funny and they gave us funny things to eat and we ate what they gave us and they gave us beads and they were actually wearing some of the beads on their wrists that they had given them. And I said, did you have a good time? And they said, yes. And I said, and what did you do then? And Gikari, there's a Gikita and a Gikari and a Gimari, so I get them a little mixed up, but Gikita was the old man. Gimari was the younger of the two women that had spent that friendly afternoon with the five men. I said, what did you tell your people when you went home? And she said, I told them they are cannibals. And I said, why did you say that? And she said, Onongi, which means for nothing, just the whim of a silly 15-year-old girl. Possibly that was the tiniest thing that that tipped the scale in Gikita's mind, we've got to kill them. Because Gimari, who had been with them for a whole afternoon, she comes back and she says, they're cannibals. And so I had heard the story, and Gikita gave me his story, his account. And I thought about the difficulty of explaining to the world why five men would do a thing like that in savage territory. And of course it's impossible because the Bible says the preaching of the cross is foolishness to them that are perishing. But to us, it is the power of God. And I tried to explain to the reporters who came to us widows and said, why did they go in there? Was it a stunt? Were they ignorant? Were they explorers? Were they looking for oil, rubber, gold? What was it? And I gave them First John 2.17, the world... And all its passionate desires will one day disappear. But the man who is following the will of God is part of the permanent and cannot die. Jim Elliot had written in his journal when he was 22, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. I would ask you tonight, what's the purpose of your life? Is it worth dying for? If it's not worth dying for, is it worth living for? I don't think so. A soldier on active service will not become entangled in civilian affairs, worldly distractions. He must be wholly at his commanding officer's disposal. That's where Jim Elliot was. He was no fool. He gave what he could not keep to gain what he could not lose. Jesus said, Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. I would ask you tonight to consider that question.
I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today. And will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember, the eternal God is your refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms. Thank you.